Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, we're going to be looking now at Genesis 3 verse 15 and the promise of God to Adam and Eve that is implied there. When you look at the context of that verse and at that verse itself, you will see immediately that there is no explicit covenant of God with Adam and Eve uh, either mentioned or made there in that verse or in the context. The whole context is a, a context of cursing. When God came to Adam and Eve after they had eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God asked Adam first, uh, Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Verse 11. And Adam answered, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. Adam blamed Eve for what he had done. And he, by the way, showed how corrupt he had become by that. He was very willing that his wife should suffer the judgment of God rather than he himself. He was uh, fearful of God's judgment. He was seeking to save himself and he Uh, if we may put it that way, threw his wife under the bus in an attempt to save himself. God then went to the woman and he said, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So Eve blamed the serpent. God then went to the serpent, verses 14 and following, and he cursed the serpent. Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. God then returned to Eve, and he cursed her. I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So he cursed her childbearing, made it sorrowful and painful to her, And he cursed her relationship with her husband. She would desire to rule over her husband. That seems to be the idea. Your desire shall be for your husband. And uh, she will not succeed. He shall rule over you. And I think there's implied in that also that Adam's rule over her would no longer be as beneficent as it had been prior to their fall. His rule would be Uh, characterized also by sin, just as her uh, relationship to him would be characterized by sin. After he had cursed the woman, God also cursed Adam. Verses 17, 18, and 19. Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. So God curses the ground, first of all, but he also curses Adam's toil. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And then, of course, at the end of this chapter, we read how God drove them out of the garden, how he prevented them henceforth from eating of the tree 
of life. They were no longer to have access to that tree of life. And not having access to the tree of life was a sign to them that they had lost the favor of God, that they were driven from the presence of God, that they were driven from the blessings of the garden, that life itself was lost to them, that they were going out into death and into darkness. They were, in fact, losing the blessed rest of the Garden of Eden. Adam had toiled six days, had worked rather six days in the service of God in perfect in perfection, and he had rested on the seventh day following the example of his Creator. And he had had on that seventh day, I think we may say, fellowship with God. That's the main idea of rest in the scriptures, as we'll see when we get to the tabernacle and the temple. He had lost his fellowship with God. He was driven from the presence of God. He had lost, therefore, the true idea of the Sabbath, the true rest of the Sabbath. His work had become toil, which shows us, too, that At the very time that he needed rest more than ever before, he was deprived of it. He had worked in perfection. He had worked in the service of God. He had worked joyfully in the service of God, resting the seventh day. Now he would work in the sweat of his brow, and he would not have rest any longer at the end of six days. He may have continued to... uh, uh, observed the Sabbath day, the seventh day, as a day of rest from his physical work. But the central idea of that rest, of fellowship with God, would no longer be available to him. So the rest was lost in that sense, even though he may have continued to observe the Sabbath day. His his labor would be toilsome and wearisome, and rest would be denied him. Sin would dominate his life. Enemies would Uh, be opposed to him, and he would have to fight all his life, and he would have to endure trouble all his life because of sin. He was uh, indeed miserable following his fall into sin. But the point which we're making here, of course, is that from these curses of God, if we take them just on their surface, there's no reason to conclude that There is here any kind of covenant of God with Adam. He's cursing the serpent. He's cursing the woman. He's cursing the man. And we have nothing explicit about a covenant or a promise or or any, uh, what seems to be, anyway, any words of hope. But in Genesis 3, verse 15, In God's words to the serpent, we do see reason for hope. Because of the fact that God speaks there of a seed of the woman which will bruise the head of the serpent and of a serpent who will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. The woman is going to have a child, and that child is going to make war on the serpent, and he is going to bruise the head of the serpent. Even though the serpent will wound him in his heel, he will inflict a mortal wound on the serpent, 
by crushing his head. The child then will be victorious over the serpent and over his seed. And that child is Christ. So there's implicit then in that promise of God, or in that threat of God, rather, against the serpent, a promise to Adam and Eve. God could have said uh, these words, or could have said something similar to this to Adam and Eve. He could have said to Adam, you will bruise the head of the serpent, or your seed will bruise the head of the serpent, and the serpent will bruise the heel of your seed. That's implicit in what he spoke to the serpent. So God was uh, making then a promise to Adam and Eve here. And that promise then consists of three things. First, he's going to make a division in the human race. He's going to divide the human race between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. There will be Uh, believers and unbelievers. There will be elect and reprobate. There will be uh, people who belong to God and people who belong to the serpent. God's going to make this division in the human race. Secondly, he is going to put enmity between these two seeds, between these two parts of the human race. The serpent will be opposed to and will hate the seed of the woman and will seek to destroy that seed, and the seed of the woman will defend herself against the seed of the serpent, and will use the means that God has given to her to achieve victory over the seed of the serpent. So you'll have two seeds, there will be enmity between these seeds, and the third thing is that the victory in that opposition between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman will go to the seed of the woman. The serpent will fail in his purposes. The serpent will be defeated. The serpent will ultimately be destroyed by the seed of the woman. But we understand then, as as God's talking to the serpent, that he's not making a covenant with the serpent. His covenants are acts of grace and of kindness and of condescension and of love. In his covenants, he comes to his people and he he makes himself be their God and he makes them be his people. So we don't have a covenant here with the serpent. That's not the point at all. We have a curse upon the serpent, but we have God implicitly making a covenant with Adam and Eve. And that's a very important idea for them to get hold of. They had obeyed the serpent They had fallen under the dominion of the serpent. They were to be driven from the garden because of their sin. They were under God's curse because of their sin. They had lost all the blessings of the garden and fellowship with God. The question for them then was, is everything ruined? Are all the glory and the blessedness of that first creation lost forever? Are we doomed to death with no hope? at all to redeem us of redemption from it. And it is in this threat which God makes to the serpent that we find the words of hope, the words of God's promise, the first proclamation of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this 
word of God to the serpent partakes by implication of the nature of a covenant with Adam and Eve. God is making a promise of redemption to Adam and Eve. He is making a promise of restoration to Adam and Eve. A restoration of that fellowship which was broken by the fall. A restoration of that life which they lost in the fall. A restoration of that rest and peace and joy which they had enjoyed prior to the fall. In fact, as understood from the scriptures and from later history of God, God was not only restoring what they had lost, he was advancing the relationship to something better. For there was a first Adam who fell, who was of the earth early, and there will be, he is saying, a second Adam, who is the Lord from heaven. We call this word of God, then, the mother promise. Not only the proto-evangel, the first proclamation of the gospel, but the mother promise. The promise from which all the later promises of God to his people are born. The acorn from which the mighty oak tree of God's covenant of grace, covenants of grace in the Old Testament, grow. All of them are a flowering of this uh, first promise of God to fallen man in his misery. And as we've seen, God here creates two seeds, puts enmity between them, and promises victory to the seed of the woman. We call that enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent the antithesis. And it is a fundamental fact of all history from that moment on. This is the great warfare of the history of the world. The warfare between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. We see that warfare beginning in already in Genesis chapter 4. Cain murders his brother Abel, and we can't take that just as a manifestation of sin on Cain's part. It was, of course, a manifestation of sin, but it was an attack of the seed of the serpent on the seed of the woman. It was an attempt on the part of the serpent to destroy the seed of the woman, to prevent the seed of the woman from continuing in the world. And that's the nature, then, of all the warfare of uh, God's people in the Old Testament. This is what is uh, the nature of Israel's bondage in Egypt. It is an attack. That bondage in Egypt is an attack of the seed of the serpent on the seed of the woman, an attempt to destroy that seed of the woman. You see that especially in Pharaoh's decree that all the male children of Israel were to be uh, killed. This was the nature of the uh, conquest of Israel in the land of Canaan, and Israel's wars with the nations in Canaan. The seed of the woman was 
attacking the seed of the serpent, destroying the seed of the serpent. This is the nature of David's battles with the nations in the land of Canaan. The seed of the serpent was seeking to destroy the seed of the woman. David, as king of Israel, was defending the seed of the woman and seeking to uh, give the victory to the seed of the woman in this great warfare. So this is the history also of God's people in the New Testament. The serpent is still opposed to God's people, still opposed to God, still opposed to God's cause in the world, still seeking to destroy the seed of the woman. This antithesis exists, and what God is saying here in Genesis 3, verse 15, that in that great warfare, God's people will have the victory. This victory, of course, is fundamentally in our Lord Jesus Christ, who is himself the seed of the woman. You can see that, first of all, in the Noahic covenant, the covenant with Noah in Genesis chapters 6 and 8 and 9 points to the new heavens and the new earth, which come with the judgment of our Lord Jesus Christ in the last day. The Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 15 and 17, points to the seed of the promise. And Paul says in Galatians 3, verse 16, that that seed of the promise is Christ himself. And it is in Christ then that Abraham's seed becomes innumerable as it's gathered from every nation, tribe, and tongue under heaven. In the Mosaic covenant, uh, there were many uh, types of our Lord Jesus Christ. There was the temple. Remember the Gospels speak of uh, Christ uh, being, uh, Christ's body being the temple of God. There is the high priest, Aaron, who is a type of our Lord Jesus Christ, is our great high priest. There are the lambs of the sacrifices uh, that point to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There are all these different types in the Old Testament that point us to the Lord Jesus Christ in the Mosaic Covenant that point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. In David's inheritance of the throne of Israel, we have a type of Christ as the king who rules over all nations. It is in Christ, therefore, that we have the fulfillment of the covenants. We have the ultimate seed of the woman, the uh, uh, one in whom God becomes our God, for he is Emmanuel, God with us, the one who is our high priest and the atoning sacrifice for our sins and our king who rules over all nations in order to give to us the victory. In him is fulfilled in all the riches of what God promised fundamentally in Genesis 3, verse 15. Genesis 3, verse 15 points us to that seed of the woman. And so, as we consider the covenants of God in the weeks to come, what we're going to see is the fulfillment, to some degree, of this 
promise of God, this original promise of God to Adam and Eve after their fall into sin. And we're also going to see, as we look at those covenants, that each of those covenants enriches and exposes more of the glories of God's covenant as implied here in Genesis 3 verse 15 and points us always ultimately to Christ himself. But let's look then briefly by way of um, concluding this discussion at how this original covenant was fulfilled in the Old Testament and will be fulfilled, is being fulfilled in the New Testament. Some of this material comes, by the way, from O. Palmer Robertson's book, The Christ of the Covenants, which I can recommend to you as a book which has lots of useful information in it about God's covenants in Scripture. First of all, then, the serpent becomes, in the Scriptures, a symbol of evil. That's especially true in the Old Testament. The serpent gets no good press throughout the scriptures. Always the serpent is uh, portrayed negatively. Let me give you a few examples from the Old Testament scriptures, first of all. In uh, Psalm 58, verse 4, their poison is like the poison of a serpent. They are like the deaf cobra that stops its ear, which will not heed the voice of charmers, charming ever so skillfully. That's about the wicked. They are like serpents. Psalm 140 verse 3 is very similar to that verse. Psalm 140 verse 3, They sharpen their tongues like a serpent. The poison of asps is under their lips. Isaiah 14, verse 29, is a little more explicit even than those verses. There God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah of the uh, city of Babylon and of Assyria, and he says this, Do not rejoice, oh, rather of uh, Philistia, I'm sorry, of Philistia. Do not rejoice, all you of Philistia, because the rod that struck you is broken. For out of the serpent's roots will come forth a viper, and its offspring will be a fiery flying serpent. In Isaiah 27, verse 1, again, In that day the Lord with his severe sword, great and strong, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, that twisted serpent, and he will slay the reptile that is in the sea. And finally, in Jeremiah 8, verse 17, God speaking again through his prophet, For behold, I will send serpents among you, vipers which cannot be charmed, and they shall bite you, says the Lord. So the serpents always seen negatively, a symbol of evil in the Old Testament. But when we get to the New Testament, then we find a new dimension added to this whole idea, and that is that this serpent becomes a representation of Satan himself. The serpent is Satan. You find that in Revelation 12, especially, 
But we're going to be coming back to that passage in a few minutes, so let's skip it for now, and let's just turn quickly to Roman uh, Revelation 20, verse 2. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So we have four names of Satan there. The devil, the serpent of old, Satan, and the dragon. Those are the same four names that we find in Revelation chapter 12, as we'll see shortly. So that's one way that we see Genesis 3, verse 15, being fulfilled. The serpent becomes this symbol of evil. The one who is opposed to the people of God and becomes in the New Testament the name for Satan, the chief enemy of God's people. The second way that we see this uh, promise of Genesis 3 verse 15 being fulfilled is in some references, a few references anyway, to the heels of God's people. We'll refer to two passages here, Psalm 49, verse 5. Psalm 49, verse 5. Why should I fear in the days of evil when the iniquity at my heels surrounds me? And then also in Psalm 56, verse 6. They gather together, they hide, they mark my steps or they mark my heels when they lie in wait for my life. And we also read then about the seed of the woman uh, attacking the uh, head of the serpent. So you find in, in Psalm 68 verse 21, these words, But God will wound the head of his enemies, the hairy scalp of the one who still goes on in his trespasses. And in verse 23, a reference to the foot that crushes and wounds, that your foot may crush them in blood, and the tongue of your dogs may have their portion from your enemies. In Psalm 110, verse 6, a reference to the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. That whole psalm is a prophecy of the kingship and priesthood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we read in verse 6, He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. Those are just a few references from the Old Testament. Then in the New Testament, uh, Paul, in Romans chapter 16, verse 20 makes direct reference to Genesis 3, verse 15, when he says this, And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. So you have these references that show us how that promise of God in Genesis 3, verse 15, works itself out in the history of both Old and New Testament. But there's no place where this becomes more clear than in Revelation chapter 12. And I want to take a few minutes here at the, conclu- at the conclusion of this lecture to talk about Revelation chapter 12. The chapter begins with 
a vision of a sign that appears in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. That woman is the church of the Old Testament. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. This woman is laboring to bring forth the seed of the woman who is our Lord Jesus Christ. But another sign appears in the heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. And this dragon is later called the serpent and Satan and the devil again. And this dragon stands before the woman, verse 4, ready to give birth, who was ready to give birth, to devour her child as soon as it was born. So this dragon is pictured, this great dragon is pictured as standing beside the woman, waiting always to devour her child, waiting to devour the seed of the woman, waiting to devour the Lord Jesus Christ. But he fails. Verse 5, she bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. And the woman flees into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God. So that depicts the whole history of the Old Testament. The dragon seeking to destroy the seed of the woman, waiting to devour her child as soon as it's born. Then in verses 7 and following, we find that Satan's access to heaven is cut off at this point. Throughout the Old Testament, he had access to heaven, and he accused the brethren there. We have an example of it, a very clear example of it, in Job chapters 1 and 2, when Satan appears in the presence of God and accuses Job to God. He is the accuser of the brethren. But in New Testament times, after the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ, his access to heaven is cut off. War broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then there's a great celebration in heaven of this victory of the seed of the woman, of Michael and his angels over the serpent. Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But though the dragon's access to heaven has been cut off, he still rules on earth. He is still the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. And so there is a time of trouble for God's people in the New Testament. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. That's verse 12. And, when, and then verses 13 and following describe this opposition of the dragon to the woman in more detail. When the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. 
Verse 15, that serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. I think these, this flood represents the wicked nations of the world who are subservient to the devil and who uh, help him to achieve his purposes in the world. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, verse 17, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, the seed of the woman has the victory. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. Here is the character of New Testament history, that the serpent is attacking the woman, the church of our Lord Jesus Christ, seeking to destroy her. But he fails because God provides safety for his church. He gives her two wings of a great eagle that she may fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time. So here's the significance of of Genesis 3 verse 15 for us today. God made that promise thousands of years ago to Adam and Eve. I will give victory to the seed of the woman. And he has been working at the fulfillment of that promises ever since. We live in a time when the opposition of the seed of the serpent is becoming more open and more Uh, vehement against us when the wickedness of this world becomes more and more obvious and when the hatred of the world for God and for his cause and for Christians is uh, mounting and increasing. But this is all due to the word of God many, many years ago when he said that he would create two seeds that he would put enmity between these two seeds and that he would give the victory to the seed of the woman, our Lord Jesus Christ and all who are in him. Our victory is certain because even now that seed of the woman, our Lord Jesus Christ, sits at the right hand of God, ruling all nations with a rod of iron and he will certainly come to shatter them like a potter's vessel and to establish the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness will dwell. May God bless us with his word.